to Authors on the Air. I'm your host, Pam Stack. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. My guest today is a best-selling author of the books The Life We Bury, The Guise of Another, The Heavens May Fall, The Deep Dark Descending, The Shadows We Hide, and his new book, which released yesterday, called Nothing More Dangerous. He is the recipient of the Barry Award, the Minnesota Book Award, the Rosebud Award from Left Coast Crime, and the Silver Falchion, and has been a finalist for the Edgars, the Thriller Award, and the Anthony. His books have been translated into 26 languages, and his novel, The Life We Bury, his first one, is in development for a feature film. Alan Eskins has a journalism degree, and he also has a law degree, but he studied creative writing and has an MFA from Minnesota, Minnesota State University, as well as the Loft Literary Center and the Iowa Summer Writers Festival. It is my pleasure to welcome back to Authors on the Air, best-selling author Alan Eskins. Hi, Alan. Welcome back. I'm so glad you're here. Hello. It's uh, good to be here. You know, um, congratulations on the release of your new book, um, This is what the Library Journal had to say. This powerful, unforgettable crime novel is a coming-of-age book to rival some of the best, such as William Kent Kruger's Ordinary Grace or Larry Watson's Montana, 1948. A must-read. This was a starred review uh, from Library Journal, very difficult to come by, and also a mystery pick of the month. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I am very pleased with how the book is being received. Um, it's a it's a stunningly beautiful book. This is um, a continuation of a couple of the other books that you've written before. Can you tell us where this story started and how it picks up in Nothing More Dangerous? Sure. And Nothing More Dangerous is actually a prequel to my other books, and mm-hmm. it's it's a very special book. For me, especially because I started writing this book in 1992. Uh, I just gotten out of law school. Um, I was looking for something to to scratch my creative itch, and so I started writing this story about a 15-year-old boy in 1976, Missouri. And I liked this kid that I was writing about, but I didn't know anything about writing. So I started reading books on writing technique. I started taking classes. And over 20 years of studying writing and coming to understand the the craft and technique of writing, I had turned that short story into a manuscript. But I knew it wasn't ready, so I put it aside, and I wrote my second manuscript, which became my first bestseller, which was The Life We Bury. So Nothing More Dangerous actually was written before The Life We Bury, but in in Nothing More Dangerous, my new book, um, it's the 15-year-old boy who's the protagonist is Bodhi Sandin. And when I was writing The Life for Barry, I realized that this 15-year-old boy 
Bodhi Sandin and this law professor that I was creating as a secondary character in the life we bury were really aspects of who I was when I was 15 and who I became after going to law school. So I named wow. that character in, in the life we bury Bodhi Sandin. And at the time, I thought it was just my, my own personal inside joke. Um, but now that I'm publishing nothing, nothing More Dangerous after 27 years, uh, it it stands out as a, as a prequel. And so as I was writing um, more of my novels, in particular The Heavens May Fall, where Bodhi Sandin is a co-protagonist, I was putting little Easter eggs in that story about this manuscript that I'd already written about Bodhi when he was 15 years old. So if you read Nothing More Dangerous and then go back and read the heavens um, may fall. You will see little little things in there that give you clues as to who Bodhi was back in Missouri in 1976. You, all of your books, though, can be easily read as standalone books. You don't have to um, read them in any order. Correct? That is correct. I write my books to be standalones, but the characters that I'm creating, they live in my head in a way that. I'm writing their stories as they are aging. You know, So if you read the three-book arc that I wrote for Max Rupert, The Guys of Another, The Heavens May Fall, and The Deep Dark Descending, they are standalones, but you will see a progression of Max's character over the course of those three novels, from being a kind of a Boy Scout in the first novel to questioning that in the second novel to dealing with his darkest nature in the third novel. So I, I'm always writing in character arcs, um, that you can see if you read the books in order. But if you don't read the books in order, they're designed to be standalone novels, and, and you'll find enjoyment in them as, just as well. And especially with Nothing More Dangerous, it's, this is a true standalone because I wrote it by itself, not thinking that I was ever going to write another novel in my life. Um, but now that it's being published, uh, it does connect to the other novels, but it is a much more literary novel, and it is a standalone I think all your books are literary, even though there's always um, a, an element of mystery to them, but not in the classic sense of mystery. It is truly, uh, you're a story weaver. I don't know how else to explain it. That um, I don't, yes, the comparison to Kent Kruger is very accurate. And um, uh just the cadence of your books, your writing, uh, feels very comfortable. Um, and it makes me, I, I slow down when I read your books, Alan, versus uh, blowing through a thriller. Uh, I pay more attention, interestingly enough, to the settings, you know, that you have in your books. And normally that's not a priority for me, but I think that the settings of your books also become kind of an ancillary character. Do, do you think that's true? Am I getting that wrong? No, I, I hope that is true. Um, I come to, so when I was studying writing for that, you know, 20 years before I wrote The Life of Barry, um, I was studying with the idea that I was going to be a literary novelist. I, I wasn't really thinking about doing mysteries, but as a criminal defense attorney also, I know that world. And so when I wrote The Life of Barry, and that was the first one that I wrote with the idea that I'm actually going to try and get this published. When I wrote that novel, I decided I'm going to have two different plot lines. One plot line is going to be the mystery, and that's going to be the vehicle to tell the story. It's the thing that moves the story forward. Mm -hmm. But then I'm also going to have a second plot line, and that's going to be the more literary, the, the character-driven idea uh, plot line. 
um, something with a deeper theme. So in, in that novel, it was you know the, my protagonist trying to run away from home and go to college and leave behind his responsibility for his autistic brother. And so I'd write these two plot lines out as if each one could be its own novel, and then I would weave them together. Um, and and I think that is you know part of the reason why you know readers find my books to be you know they, they call them literary mysteries, but they are they're really designed to try and not just use the intellectual aspect of a mystery, but the, the emotional. You know, I want to evoke emotion for my readers. I want them to you know yes. feel happy, feel sad, and I think slowing down to read them is a good thing in terms of that's people are, are getting deeper and deeper into the character's shoes. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you know, I and I know uh, uh, The Life We Bury, which was published, I think, in 2014, the end of 2014, um, yes. was a huge, huge best-selling book. So I, I think you struck a chord with a lot of readers who normally would not um, read literary mystery, as you call it, or, you know, uh, but, but it was a fabulously written book. It was beautiful. And um, you are, I I can't tell you how many people emailed me or sent me messages on Facebook saying, I normally don't read mysteries, but, and then they would, you know, say glowing things about my book. Yeah. It's, it's just amazing how that book, I mean, when I read Ordinary Grace, that that book changed me. And, um, and and as a matter of fact, Kent Kruger will be on next week with Ann Hillerman. And um, in the same way that This Tender Land changed me, um, your books are in that class that I want to savor. I don't want to read them fast. Um, kind of like my favorite uh, literary writer, Pat Conroy, uh, I... I want to go very slow. I want to read the dialogue out loud or just some of the narrative um, because to me it's so beautifully written. Um, Now you have some interesting news about The Life We Bury, which is the first book that you wrote. Would you tell us a little bit about it? At one point I knew it was being optioned for film and, um, and then things kind of changed up a little bit and maybe for the better. Where is that now? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The option was sold, and uh, we spent, I think, three years with um, trying to get the screenplay written. And after three years, uh, the screenplay that they were, that the screenwriter they had wasn't providing a screenplay that was working for the producers. And so last year, the producers and I were on a phone call, and they said, we're going to you know, start over with a new screenwriter. And I had actually been studying screenwriting on the side because nothing more dangerous. I wanted to write the screenplay for the, the novel that's coming out this year because I really love that novel. And so I'd been studying screenwriting, and I said, well, can can I just give my shot at it and see what you think? And they said, sure. So uh, this this past year I wrote the screenplay, um, sent it to my producers. They liked it, and um, they're shopping it around now for the next step, which is to try and get a director signed on and um, – Hopefully wow. the the project is moving forward now. Wow, I mean, wow! Out of a book that you started when you were in law school, 
and here you are to writing the screenplay, which begs the question, how difficult was it for you to write the screenplay after all those lovely words that you put in a full-length book? The, the hard part is, of course, with a screenplay, you're supposed to have around 120 pages. Right. Um, and a novel, my novels are all 300-plus pages, and so you got to cut stuff. But um, because I know the story, I start out with what is the essence of the story, and I outline what the essence is. Um, I'm not looking at you know this this particular chapter, this particular sentence. I'm looking at the essence of the, of the plot lines, and I know that that I need to condense them, the the plot lines. So um, I'm focusing on what is absolutely necessary. And then when I get that, I look at it and say, is this still the same story as what I wrote in my book? And it is. So the next step is, there's, because I wrote it in first person, there's so much stuff that happens in my character's head uh, that where I'm talking to the reader through the character's you know, thoughts. You can't do that in screenplays unless you do voiceover, which I wasn't going to do. So the right. next thing is, how do you get that important information to the audience in a way that is entertaining and um, not voiceover. And so it just took a lot of outlining. And once I had the outline figured out, um, then I just sat down and, and started writing. I'm, I suffer with grammar issues, so I've, I've always struggled with that. However, um, when you're writing a screenplay, there's so much little technical things you got to deal with. You know, if you bring a prop in, you got to put that in all caps the first time and just little things like that that I had to, to learn. But it was fun learning and it was a fun, it was a challenge. It was a, I love challenges and uh, I worked on it and turns out so far so good. Wow. Um, amazing. I, yeah, I was thinking because it's in first person, you can't have voiceovers because that's an immediate turnoff to everyone. It's actually, when you have um, voiceover, when a character is explaining what they're doing, even in a novel, it's a turnoff because you, you kind of are, are saying your audience isn't smart enough to get it. So, you know, to, uh, well, to the, just, the thing is that there's this common wisdom that voiceover is a bad thing for movies. But when you look at some of the best movies out there, so many of them have voiceover. Shawshank Redemption. Um, you yeah. got Red telling this story. So right. um, some of the best screenplays are voiceover, but because it is perceived as being um, kind of a crutch, uh, I yes. wanted to do the script without voiceover. And if later they wanted to bring voiceover in, that would actually make it an easier script to write. Well, so let's talk about Shawshank Redemption for a minute because the story did not stop with Red telling his part of it. Um, he the the motion of that story, the movement kept going forward, and it it actually worked to take us through a long period of time. So when he was talking about Andy, um, you know he you could see what was going on. So I, I think it works in that respect, but you've got to be really careful with it, obviously. And in books, the same way. I have read. Um, uh, plenty where where a character is doing something and says his dialogue and then explains in his own head 
why he feels like that. I don't want that to happen. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, do you think having yeah, there's a big written... discussion in, in the screenwriting world. There's a big discussion of you know who is the protagonist of Shawshank Redemption. Is it Andy or is it Red? My, I, I, I follow along the line that it's Red. This is Red's story um, because it is that last chapter, that last scene where he you know goes to the beach in Mexico. Um, right. You know, get busy living, get busy dying um, is really kind of the the tagline for the movie. It is, but you know when I thought the pivotal point was when he was at the parole board hearing, he said, I really don't care what you do with me. Let me go or make mm-hmm. me stay. To me, that was the pivotal point, and that's when it, I recognized that it became his story. But you're right. I like the last scene, and that's where that famous line came from. So yes, having, and, and having, the, the scene at the parole board is, is in screenwriting terms, it's him throwing up his hands saying, I give up. You know, there, that's right. Uh, in, in, it's the all hope is lost moment in right. the, the story, which is something that you're supposed to have in all these stories. So all hope is lost, but then turns out he gets paroled. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, no. So uh, my question is here. Now you've, you spent all this time writing the life you bury, and now you've spent however long it took you to write the screenplay for it. Do you have a different um, thought about how you want to write books after having written the screenplay? Um, have you have you changed your writing style because of it? I, I know that screenplays teach you to use your words more economically, but how does that change you as the novel writer? It does change you. And the obvious one is going to be, yeah, more being more economical and more to the point with your, your dialogue. Um, but in studying screenwriting, there are so many good lectures and, and instruction that go to creating emotion in yes. storyline. And yes. I don't think that as a, as a novelist I ever came upon that level of understanding in, in writing novels. Um, there's, a, there's a guy named Carl Iglesias who's a screenwriter who has taken apart how Pixar can can show you a, a robot in uh, WALL-E or right. a, a toy in Toy Story and make you want to cry for these things yes. that you know aren't real. And there is a very definite thing that they do, that, that the screenwriters do, in terms of how they present the protagonist. Um, there's another, there's things like the solilo- soliloquy of, of um, fears and desires. So if I'm writing a story and I have a character who has um, internal fears and external fears, or, um, for example, they're nothing more dangerous. My mm-hmm. protagonist, Bodhi, mm-hmm. he, he wants to run away from home because he hates his life. He's 15 years old, but he hates his life. He wants to run away from home, but he lives with a widowed mother, and he knows that running away from home would hurt her. And so there's the two competing desires. He right. wants to run away, but he doesn't want to hurt his mother. And he can't have both of those. You know, One's got to win out over the other. And when you present those in a soliloquy form, you know, back-to-back, it psychologically draws readers into the story because they want to you know, root for one or the other. They, they, they want to, you know reach out and, and you know, hug this kid. Right. So there, there, there's all this stuff like that that I learned in screenwriting. Some of it I was already doing, just I didn't realize, you know, the, the psychology of it. But mm-hmm. I learned a lot about my own writing in studying screenwriting. It's interesting. Um, yeah, I think if I don't have an emotional connection to 
dialogue to the character, to the the motion, the forward movement in it, I will lose interest. And I'm one of those people that's a really a lot of. I'm very, very fortunate that I have a lot of books come to my house every day and I can pick and choose what I want to read. And of course, when I got your book, I knew immediately that I would read that one first. Um, but, but sometimes, and it's one of the reasons why I'm hard pressed to read literary fiction is it feels very forced. The angst, the emotion feels forced to me. And, um, while I can empathize with a character uh, or their struggle, I don't feel it. So, so I guess you're right. There, you have to set it up a push and pull in the story. And uh, am I right about it, that? It, am I explaining it the right way? Uh, it, well, what, a, what a screenwriter would, would say is you have to create a character, um, and they don't, they don't have to be quote unquote likable. But they're, right. they be someone who you understand where they're coming from, and right. you have to give them, uh, for example, a, a worthy goal. So if they're if they're a really really nice person and wonderful in all other ways, but their their goal in life is to make money, that worthy goal that that goal is not worthy, and you're not going to to attach yourself to that person. However, if their goal is to you know save a bunch of puppies from a flood, you know, or, or something like that, right. You that were the goal. You step into their 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 world and you say, "I want to go with you on this ride because I, I want you to to obtain this worthy goal." So there's all these little things that you do as a writer to um, to bring to engage the reader and bring them in to the story. So it's not just telling a story. They you want them to experience this world. Yeah, I um I understand that as a as a, a voracious reader now and having spoken to so many of you creative people who explain the art of storytelling. Um, you practiced law for 25 years, criminal law, if I'm not mistaken, right? Correct. And um, did But you always knew that you wanted to write. You always knew that. Um, do you think that your practicing law um, made you a, a good storyteller or helped you become a good storyteller? Uh, I actually don't think so. Um, I think my storytelling was something that was in me from my earliest years because I was a daydreamer. And I come to writing as a daydreamer, as a way to take these daydreams and this imagination and put it in a form that I can express it to others. So um, being actually, being a lawyer actually was, was hard to – I had overcome my writing tendencies – where as a lawyer I'm writing in very you know declarative sentences and no contractions sure. and a very right. specific way I had to like create a separate you know place in my brain where this is my creative spot and I can use contractions and I can I can have free flowing poetry and stuff like that where so I had to like, actually work against my my lawyer background Interesting. David Morrell said to me that he thinks it's a shame that adults don't daydream as much as kids do. He said, you form your true self when you daydream. You are aware of who your true self is. And that seems to be the case with you. You were a daydreamer. You knew that you had this creative thing. Why did you choose not to do that first and then go into law. I'm assuming you must have liked some part of it. You stayed there for 25 years, um, uh, or something held you to that profession. Um, how well, do you? I, I very, I very much enjoyed law. Um, oh, okay. But the thing is, as a as a writer, 
I didn't come to this thinking I'm going to be a published author and sell books and make a living at it. I came to it in terms of I want to write stories that that invoke and, and engage, and I want to be a good writer. Whether I get published doesn't matter. I you want to be a good writer. You just wanted to write. Yeah, some people play golf. I would write paragraphs, you know, for enjoyment. So here you are, um, a best-selling, award-winning author. Your sixth book is now available. Um, your screenplay for your first book is in the can. Um, you're moving forward on that. Are there other things that you want to do that don't include necessarily writing another book or writing a screenplay? Do you want to do theater? Do you want to continue to write? What's What are your hopes and dreams for your future as a creative person? Um, all of my, my dreams center around writing in one form or, or another. I do have a play in my head that you know, right now I'm not taking very seriously simply because i got so much other stuff I want to do. Um, mm-hmm. So when, when, I, when I think of all the projects I would like to do before I die, you know, it's down towards the bottom of the list because I got other books I want to write, and um, I, I, I'm I'm excited about writing more books. So the next book will be uh, Lila Nash. She's Joe Talbert's girlfriend in The Life for Barry. Um, she appears in three of my novels as a secondary character. I'm going to write her story where she's the protagonist. So that is what I'm focusing on now. And then after that, I got two other books in my head that I want to write. Alan, when so you picked out Lila Nash to go ahead and be your next protagonist, um, but do you create a totally different setting for her? Her story is going to be very unique, or are those Easter eggs there um, in the life we bury? So we'll know a little bit about yeah. what's coming. Yeah, um, in the life we bury and in the shadows we hide both, I talk about Lila's past. She has a very turbulent past. And I've always felt that at some point she's going to need to go back and confront what happened to her when she was in high school. Um, Mm -hmm. So that story is already there to be told. Now it's a matter of how do I tell it best? You know, what is the mechanism for Lila going back and and dealing with these things that happened to her? Um, But yeah, that those her backstory is is really the centerpiece of the novel. Of the novel, it's it's current day, but it's she's going to have to go back and deal with what happened to her in her past. Um, I want to just ask you a few kind of off-the-wall things. Do you listen to music while you're writing? I listen to music around my writing. So if I want to be in a certain mood, um, there's songs I listen to, to to make me feel like melancholy or you know to get me excited. Um, so depending on what kind of scene I'm writing, I might listen to some music like that. When I was writing Nothing More Dangerous, it takes place in 1976. I was listening to a steady stream of music from 1970 up to 1976, you know, which was my era. I mean, I was I was into was Aerosmith that? and yeah, and it was Leonard disco and, and and rock and roll. <laughs> it was it was disco, but um, I was back then. I was more in the in the rock and roll. Bit. Part. You and me both. Yeah, yeah. When I got into high school and learned how to dance, then disco became important to me. <laughs> there you go. Uh, um, are you comfortable writing in a cafe or you know a coffee shop, or do you want quiet 
where you can allow your thoughts to go through your head? I have to be where there's no distractions. If I go to a coffee shop, I get nothing done. So I, I sit in my basement, actually where I'm sitting right now, in a recliner with my laptop on my lap and um, no distractions around except for I have a coonhound who lays on the couch beside me. I think you might have heard him bark earlier. I did. I did. But that's okay. You're an animal lover. That that gives more credence to why I like you. Um, if you couldn't ever write again, in an alternate life, what would you have liked to have done? Oh, heavens. Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, th- there was a time when I really, really wanted to be an actor. Um, but I left that behind when I was still in college, and I really haven't missed that. Um, so I honestly don't know. I, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. What is something people don't know about you but you're not afraid to tell us? Um, I like to stay in my pajamas all day. <laughs> Just listen, I, um, I, I so hear that loud and clear. <laughs> you have the type of job that doesn't require you to put on a suit and tie, right? Exactly. Not anymore. Yeah, and, and in the summertime, I take my dogs for a walk in the morning, but in the wintertime when it's too cold to, to take them for a walk, I, I stay in my pajamas if I can. How do the dogs feel about that? <laughs> what They're do you think? Fine. Um, Run out the door I, I have, and come back when you're done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, which doesn't take long because um, I got you know three dogs. They're all rescue dogs. Um, only oh, one of you. them is one. One's a German Shepherd, but she has such bad legs that she can't, you know, she can't walk very far. So um, it's all very, very quick in the morning and when it's cold out. Oh, um, Alan, are you doing a book tour for this particular release? I am. Can you tell us about in, it? I'll be in St. Paul tonight at Subtext Books, and I'll be doing my hometown Barnes & Noble in Mankato tomorrow at 7 o'clock. Uh, then i got a day off, and I'm going to be in the Twin Cities again at Amber and Cream. Um, that I'll do, then I'll start like expanding out and doing you know, bookstores that are a little, still in Minnesota, but you know, farther away. Then I'll I'm going to be doing uh, a drive down through Madison, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Chicago, St. Louis, uh, Columbia, Missouri, and Jeff City, Missouri. Fun. Where can we find you on the web and in social media, please? AlanAskins.com is my website, and that's where all my events are listed. Um, I'm I got Alan Eskins author Facebook page. I've got A Eskins on Twitter. Um, I'm on uh, Instagram, although I'm not very good at that. So, uh, yeah, just most of the social media I'm on there. Congratulations on the release of Nothing More Dangerous. It's an exceptional book. Um, I enjoyed it immensely. And um, I look forward to seeing you at, I'm sorry I missed you at some of the conferences. We usually see each other at, like, BoucherCon or something like that. Uh, will you be at any conferences next year? Are you going to Thriller Fest or BoucherCon? Uh, I always go to BelcherCon, and uh, I'll be going to the Tucson Book Fe- Festival of Books in March. Right, right. Um, I don't know if, if I'll be going to Thriller Fest or not yet this year, but uh, um, I do go to that every now and again. I also go to Left Coast Crime sometimes, but BelcherCon uh, yeah. is, is pretty much every year. Well, BelcherCon's in Sacto next year, so that should be an easy one for you, right? I think I think so. 
Yeah, I'll be there for sure. This is Alan Eskins. The new book is called Nothing More Dangerous, already receiving star review from all the literary journals. Um, if indeed we you get your director and all, is there a target date for the film release for The Life We Bury? Oh, not yet, no. Yeah, no, it's, but it's, you will keep us posted. Do. You will keep will us posted keep on posted. that. I will definitely keep posted, absolutely. Uh, Congratulations on all your success, Alan, and thank you so much for spending time with me today. I really appreciate it. And I want to remind listeners to go to Alan's website, and also you can buy his book online and in any brick-and-mortar store. Please do it, and please leave a review. It's really important, for not for the author so much, but the Amazon has just set it up that way. So leaving reviews is a really nice thing to do. Um, thank you for listening today. And thank you, mom and dad. I'll see you later. Mm-hmm.